please turn with me to James chapter 5. Hopefully you've got your Bible, if not a phone or something. James chapter 5. just a little bit more report. So I will uh, not be preaching for the next several weeks. Um, Brian Halila, who was the lead pastor at Redeemer a long time ago, has agreed to come in and to preach for several weeks um, during this time. So you all love on and welcome Brian Halila. I believe he's going to be doing a series of messages in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Tara and I had a great meeting with the surgeon on Friday, and as I sent out an email, my PET scan was clear, so praise God, it does not appear any of my cancer has spread. The biopsy uh, came back and, and looks cancer-free. It was indeed cancer-free, which is a praise. At the same time, they're, they're playing with some, um, some percentages. They're playing with my relative health. They're play, pray, playing with my age and kind of putting all those things together and saying, even though we don't see cancer there, we believe the best thing to do is to move forward with surgery. And so both Tara and I agreed with that. And so we're heading into it, not this Wednesday, but next. I had looked at some things online, which, you know, are you supposed to do that or not? And it looked like my surgery was going to be a laparoscopic surgery, you know, some, some, a handful of holes across my front, maybe a few on the side, and doctor on Friday said, yeah, a lot of guys do it that way, not me. He said, I like to open you up and get a good look. And so he said, I'm either going to go across here or kind of down here. He said, it's a game day decision for me, but I like to get my hands in there and I like to do it right. And of course, we were both thumbs up, Tara and I thumbs up to that. One of the guys yesterday at the men's breakfast said, you ought to get a tattoo of a zipper at the top of your scar. We'll see about that one. Over the last several weeks, so many of you have said, man, you look great. You've lost some weight. You look great. You look great. You look great, which I really appreciate. And a uh, doctor told me, though, not though, but I can expect through this surgery and over the next several weeks to lose maybe 15 more pounds and I said, yeah, doctor, I, I, you know, I could stand to lose 15 more pounds, but I'll gain them back, right? And he said, probably not. Handful of reasons he talked about. So, you know, I don't encourage this diet plan, but I've been somewhat overweight for a long, long time. You know, 220, 230. I'm down to about 197 now. He said I could go as low as 180 pounds. That's, that's going back a long way for me long time ago. Appreciate all of your prayers. So far, God is always good, all the time, but he has certainly answered our prayers, and, and uh, we look forward to seeing his goodness some more. In James 5, recently our dear neighbors got done wrong. We've lived in our neighborhood now for two years, and we've made friends with almost all of our neighbors, and one of these families is just has become so dear to us. He's a good man. He has a sweet wife, and they have two beautiful, wonderful, fun 
Down syndrome children. 16, 17 years ago, uh, she got pregnant and they had their first child, a daughter with Down syndrome. And then for many, many, many years, they couldn't get pregnant again, and then they did. And lo and behold, they had another Down syndrome child. And the doctors say there, there's no connection. There's nothing genetic about it. It's like lightning struck twice for them. And we love them, and they seemingly love us. Their home is a beautiful home. It's nothing big. And as they have thought about their family and the need to care for their children as they get older, even into young adulthood and, and who knows for how long, they've thought about moving to a bigger home. But they tell us, since y'all moved in two years ago, we're not moving. We have become such good friends. Our daughters love their kids. We love their kids. We sit out in the front yard all the time. One of the kids swings in our swing um, came to the football game the other night with us. My girls and I jumped in his truck with him the other night to go get some Dairy Queen. It's just a sweet, kind, fun relationship. But as he's thought about, well, we're not going to move, but we need more space, he looks at his detached garage and thinks, maybe we can add something on the back or maybe something on the top. And he decides on the top and interviews contractors and finds one that looks just awesome. Incredible reviews online, meets with him, likes what he has to hear, and so they strike a deal. And in this particular case, to get going, you had to put a third of the money down. You can imagine how much this kind of deal would cost in full. So to put a third down is a big old chunk. This particular contractor who has had such great reviews over the years has had a bad year, apparently. And he has basically lost all of their money. And the chances of them getting it back are slim to none. And my neighbor buddy, as you can imagine, is pretty hot about it. And I was hot for him. So frustrating to be done wrong like that and to, it looks like, lose so much money that he and his wife had been saving for a long, long time with a vision to take care of their Down syndrome children. And to be done like that is so frustrating. got another experience. We, so this is the Mitch neighborhood. In our neighborhood, there's also another home. And as Tara and I were driving downtown to downtown Houston the other morning for my endoscopy and ultrasound, this one just kind of popped out of me. I'm not a very emotional guy, but I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to call our neighbors and talk to them about what's going on. Because at this particular home, and then all the, all the Families in our cul-de-sac take beautiful care of their homes, and it's a sweet little cul-de-sac, except one house that just looks not good. And they don't live there. They've moved, but they don't want to sell the house. They want to keep it. And so they are keeping it, but they're not keeping it up. And so it just looks terrible and all of this stuff. And so I'm thinking, he's doing us wrong, the mayor's. 
He's doing all of our neighbors wrong. And it's beginning to irk me. Get frustrated about it. Maybe the worst part is God's not doing anything about it. You know? God's not doing anything about my buddy who's going through this far greater deal. And God's not doing anything about my situation. I'm so frustrated with... There is evil in the world. You say, wow, Mitch, that's not much evil. It is for my buddy, but not much for you, and I get it. But there's evil in the world, and we can get deceived. I could tell you a story about me being deceived, but it would look, make me look so stupid and so naive and so gullible, I'm not going to tell it to you. I'd be too embarrassed. But I got deceived by a guy one time, and it cost me some money. And you get cheated. People slander you. People ignore you more, 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 whatever it might be. We talk all the time about trials that we go through. Maybe it's cancer or maybe it's being let go from a job or maybe it's a, a difficult relationship and all of those have their many passages as well. But sometimes it's sin done to us, evil done to us. And it hurts, and there's suffering to one extent or another, and God doesn't seem to do anything about it. I love this song. We sometimes sing it, right? Do you feel the world is broken? We do. The world's broken. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. I think the passage this morning is going to kind of bring those two things together. The present brokenness, the deepening shadows, the darkness, the groaning. But then the future light getting through when all things will be made new, when a new creation is here and the Lord is in our midst. So let's take a look at it. In James chapter 5, we're going to be beginning in verse 7, but we'll, we'll take a look back. This particular passage is addressing evil that brings suffering to God's people and no immediate judgment on the evildoers. Let's go ahead and pick it up in verse 1. Come now, you rich Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. James is here addressing the unrighteous rich. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. 
You remember last week I said that James, if you were to read the Sermon on the Mount from the book of James, you would see so many things coming together like this. And if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, right, Jesus, don't lay up for yourselves treasures in, on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Here's one of those illusions. Your riches have rotted. Your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. Their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It's in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath. So these rich guys have these poor guys working for them and they withheld what's rightly theirs. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. It appears that James is writing to these suffering Christians who have suffered at the hands of the rich in this particular way. These unrighteous rich are committing evil deeds against them. And because of it, they are, God's people, are suffering. And apparently God's not doing anything about it. Some of you might remember Psalm 73, where Asaph is beside himself, at least for a while, because the wicked seemingly prosper and the righteous suffer. In the book of Malachi, some of God's people were saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Why? Because People were doing evil deeds, and God wasn't doing anything about it. And so apparently, whoever's doing evil must be good in the sight of the Lord, and God delights in them. They were also saying, where is the God of justice? In Zephaniah, some were saying, the Lord will not do good or evil. As they considered the evil that was going on around them, and yet God was not coming in judgment. Sometimes we read in the scriptures of the righteous crying out, How long, O Lord? How long? Evil in the world, causing suffering to God's people, God not doing anything about it, and the temptations that come with that. I think James is going to get to at least two of them. One of them is impatience. We see that because over and over again in verses 7 through following, he's going to call us to be patient. You see it in verse 7. Therefore, be patient, brethren. A little bit later in verse 7, being patient about it. Verse 8, you too be patient. Verse 10, as an example, brethren, of suffering and patience. 
Apparently, one of the sins that you and I can struggle with in the midst of a fallen world is impatience. God is not seemingly judging evil, and so maybe I need to judge it myself. When the time frame stretches, maybe those feelings of impatience intensify, and we can think, if the Lord won't vindicate me, then I'll take matters into my own hands. We know this is not what God calls us to, right? Do not repay evil with evil. Leave room for the vengeance of God. For the scripture says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But my neighbor wants to drive over to that guy's house and find him. And I said, yeah, I'll go with you, man. Let's go get him. And I want to call up my other neighbor and say, would you do something about this? Because none of us has a problem with somebody perpetrating evil against us, right? As long as God does what? Strikes them with a meteor immediately. That'd be fine. Do me wrong. No big deal. Watch out. Here it comes. Boom. But when it happens and God isn't working on our timetable. We can grow impatient and the temptation can be to try to take matters into our own hands. We'll look at a couple other passages in a minute about that. Maybe another one of the temptations is not only to be impatient about it and try to fix it ourselves, take care of it ourselves, but even to, com- to complain about it and, and maybe even, well, there it is in verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. It almost seems out of place. It seems you could take out verse 9 and, and we would go from verse 8 to verse 10 just, just like that. But in the midst of this, James wants to remind us of something he's been saying over and over again throughout the book. Be careful with the relationships within the body of Christ. And, and, and maybe the connection is in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hardship, in the, in the midst of evil being perpetrated and of course, what's happening to my neighbor is just happening to him. And, and the little angst I have with my other neighbor is just happening in my own heart. But sometimes, and apparently here, what, what, what the Christians were suffering was, was something that they were all suffering. And, and when the pressure gets turned up and when the tension rises, sometimes we can do what? bang heads with each other. What did he call our tongue back there in chapter 3? A restless evil full of deadly poison. 
becomes so volatile and something that must be tamed. And here again, I think he's drawing our attention to that. Do not complain. Others, do not groan. One translated, don't moan. Against one another. We see the same ideas, I think, over in chapter 3 where he's calling upon them to exercise true wisdom. The wisdom from below is jealousy and selfish ambition, disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is pure and peaceable and gentle and reasonable and full of mercy and good fruits. And so as we live in the tension between the fall back in Genesis 3 and the restoration of all things in Revelation 21, when evil is run amok and the suffering that can sometimes come our way and the impatience that we can sometimes have, let's be careful that we don't see it bubbling over in a restless evil, a restless tongue against one another. One said, grumbling is one temptation that accompanies difficult circumstances, and we can easily take out our frustrations on each other. So there's evil in the world. It can cause suffering. God's not doing anything about it. The temptation is to take care of it ourselves. But of course, if you've glanced at the passage at all, you know that's not what James is calling us to. Over and over and over again, he calls us to patience. You, therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So two words, really, patience and endurance. Patience is one of those cool Greek words, I think. Macrothumia. Thumia means pain. Macro means long. Lots. Be pained a long time. Be patient. Macrothumia. One guy said it's self-restraint that does not hastily retaliate against a wrong. Right? You've been wronged. Hurt. We want to hastily retaliate. God's word says to you and to me, be patient, be patient, be patient, be patient, endure, endure. Endurance defined as the temper 
which does not easily succumb to the suffering. I quoted it earlier, but what James is saying here is no different than what Paul does, says in Romans chapter 12 to God's suffering people. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Don't be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Isn't that, isn't that what you want to do when somebody wrongs you? Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil. With good, it's no different than what first than what Peter would say. First Peter chapter two. He's talking to servants here who are experiencing evil being perpetrated against them. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience towards God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. You ever suffered unjustly? What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Not much credit there. I mean, you were harshly treated because you did something wrong. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. For you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. James is on the same page with Paul, with Peter, you could even look to Jesus. He gives us a few examples here to maybe help us. Up there in verse 7, the farmer waits. He waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. So those, some of you grew up on a farm. And you know what this is all about. Farming is early and long hours. It's constant toil. It's regular disappointments. It's much patience. And even lots of boredom. Because you toil the ground with the ground. What do you do? I don't even know. You plow it up. And then you plant your seed. 
and then you wait, wait, wait until those early rains. In Israel, it would have been in the late fall in October. And then you wait and you wait and you wait, those early rains helping it to begin to germinate and do its thing, but you wait and wait until March, April of the spring and get those late rains so that that crop can finish what it does. But a farmer is patient to wait. Another example down there in verse 10 of the prophets. As an example, brethren, of examples for you and me to be patient and to wait. And of course we're going to get there. We're waiting on the coming of the Lord. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. They spoke in the name of the Lord. They proclaimed the word of God. They weren't doing that which was wrong. In fact, they were right in the middle of God's will, and because of it, they were suffering. They'd rather take their own vengeance, they were patient and waited on the Lord. I just love to read this passage in Hebrews 11 about some of God's faithful ones from the Old Testament. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to fight, to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. They were trusting God even in the midst of their sufferings of a future day of his reward. The other example is Job. You've heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. You probably know the story of Job, righteous Job, who lost his wealth, who lost his family, who lost his health, You read Job chapters 1, 2, and 3, and you see what Satan is up to and what God is permitting and the suffering that this man endures, and it's heartbreaking. In 4 to 31, you see 
his defense, if you will, as he debates with his friends, defends his position. But then the latter part of the book is amazing as God comes and speaks to him. For chapter after chapter after chapter, it's his friends talking to him. And it's Job talking about himself. But then towards the end of the book, God talks. And God does at least two things to Job. He humbles him. You know the story. Job, no doubt, had lots of questions. And God gave him no answers. In fact, what God did was pelted him with a whole set of new questions. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Can you make it rain? What about the constellations in the sky? You know anything about those? Just question after question after question, reminding Job. Mitch, you're just a little fella. I am a great and a sovereign God. And yes, you are going through suffering. And yes, you've got some questions about it. But son, I'm in control. I am great and I am awesome. And I'm in this. He humbles Job, but then he honors him. Job comes to the end of the book in chapter 42. It says a handful of things, but one of them, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. I think the idea is I've come to a new knowledge of who you are. My knowledge of God is deeper now than it has ever been. And God gives to him twice as much as he had before. Job was not perfect throughout the book of Job, not at all. But the one thing about the brother is he never lets go. He never lets go. He's dealing with his questions and his hardship and his friends and God. And, and, and yet, he's right there, patiently enduring. And he learned that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. What a phrase, right? God is compassionate and merciful towards his children. Whoa. Is it already 1140? What are we waiting on? We're waiting on the coming of the Lord. Let's be patient. Patient for what? Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. The coming of the Lord is near. The judge is standing right at the door. God's not doing anything about evil. Not yet, he's not. But one day he will. One day he will. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God who became a man and lived a holy life and died a substitutionary death upon the cross for your sins and mine, rose bodily from the dead, ascended into heaven, 
where he is right now and he's praying for us and he's representing us and he's reigning and ruling over all things. And one day he's coming back. And when he does, he will judge righteously. All wrongs will be made right. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. A New Testament scholar wrote this little paragraph. I liked it about the second coming of Jesus. He took a whole bunch of texts and just put them together. Jesus taught that his coming would be preceded by signs and would, when it happened, be as vivid and visible and unmistakable as lightning which illuminates the whole sky. It will happen on a day which cannot be known in advance and will bring about a separation or taking away of the people of God. Those who are Christ's will be gathered forever into his presence, caught up to meet him in the air, transformed into an unblemished holiness as they are at last made fully alive in Christ. To unbelievers, the expectation of the Lord's return is a matter for cynical doubt and dismissal. But to believers, this sure hope constitutes a strong call to endure. He's got all kinds of texts everywhere throughout this when he gets to this one. But to believers, this sure hope constitutes a strong call to endure. He's got James 5, 8. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Strong call to endure and to prepare by holiness in this life for the Lord himself will come in power. His foes will perish. The heavens and the earth will be replaced by new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness will dwell. And so, brothers and sisters, between the fall and the ultimate restoration, when we have to deal with all sorts of stuff, one of which is evil that can sometimes be even perpetrated against us, and it brings suffering, and we're going, hmm, God is not sending the meteor. We want to be impatient. We want to take care of it ourselves. And sometimes that can lead us to complain and groan even against one another. Let's be patient. Let's wait upon the Lord. And until he comes, in the meantime, let's walk with Jesus. Let's be filled with his spirit. Let's be a people of love, a people of kindness, a people of grace. Let's share the gospel. Let's love our neighbors. Let's serve the church. Let's enjoy life and a good laugh, some good food and good drink. Let's follow Christ joyfully. And when the hits come, let's take them and endure until the very end. And when he comes, we'll be with him forever and forever in a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, give us patience. Give us patience by the, the contemplation and the assurance of the coming of the Lord. That you're not done yet. That there was the creation and there was the fall 
And you have sent your son into the world. And there was the redemption accomplished at the cross. But there is a consummation still to come. There's more work that you are going to do. In the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Vanquishing your foes. Vindicating your people. Making all things new. May that hope help us to be patient. To not hastily take matters into our own hands and retaliate against the evil sometimes perpetrated against us. Help us to endure, to have that temper about us that stays at it, trusting you, clinging to you, even in the midst of our questions, even in the midst of our heartache, even in the midst of... That we would, we would cling to you and stay faithful. Trusting, clinging, persevering, enduring. Like the farmers did. Like the prophets of old did. Like Job did. And Lord, surely as we do, we will find that you are full of compassion and mercy. And we will bless you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.